We turn to Genesis chapter 2. We have finished looking at what God created in the six days of creation in chapter 1. Now we turn to chapter 2 and focus on that for a little bit. Going to read the whole chapter this afternoon. The text of the sermon is verses 8 through 17. So pay special attention to those verses. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. Now this is the part that we focus on in our text, verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. The name of the first is Pison, that is it which compasseth the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. There is bdellium and the onyx stone. And the name of the second river is Gihon. The same is it that compasseth the whole land of Ethiopia. And the name of the third river is Hidekel. That is it which goeth toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. That's where our text ends. We'll just keep reading to the end of the chapter, though. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him an help meet for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air, And brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name of it thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found and help meet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman, and brought her unto the man. 
And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. We have seen in these sermons that in the book of Genesis, God reveals to us the answers to some of the great questions of life. One of those great questions is, what was the earth like in the beginning? What was the earth like? Was the earth a place that was born from the sun? that was shaped over great eons of history in which violent eruptions were taking place in a fiery, hot orb of metals that were gradually cooling down so that through natural processes over millions and even billions of years, eventually the first living organism spontaneously, randomly, emerged out of the elements of the earth and then had to battle forces to survive until it evolved again by chance and mutation and survival until it became greater, higher organisms? Is that what the earth was like in the beginning? The book of Genesis says no. Or rather, in the book of Genesis, God says no. That is not what the earth was like, even though that is what you will find if you consult any modern science textbook. The book of Genesis tells us what the earth was like in the beginning. God inspired Moses to tell us that in the beginning, in the very first moment, God created the earth out of nothing. And then, in only a matter of a few days, God shaped and molded and fashioned the earth into a beautiful and delightful place, bursting with life forms of all different kinds, lush green grass, beautiful trees and shrubs and bushes, bearing the most exquisite flowers and delicious fruit that were good for man to eat, as well as the animals. It was a place in the beginning, after only a matter of a few days, in which beasts of the field creeping things, cattle, birds of the air, and the fish swarming in the seas, all dwelled together in perfect harmony and happiness. The beginning of the earth is not a place of violent eruptions and convulsions and random spontaneous emergence of life, but in the beginning, God made the earth perfect, perfectly good, harmonious, and a place of happiness. Another great question that we ask about the past is, where was the original abode of man? What was the cradle of humanity? Where in the earth did man first come forth? Is the answer to that question 
that man evolved somewhere from apes in the great continent of Africa. Again, if you would consult any modern science textbook, you would find this to be the modern consensus, that man emerged somewhere in Africa, having evolved from the apes, the primates. But in the book of Genesis, God says no. Actually, the original abode of man, the cradle of humanity, was in the Middle East, not in Africa. Somewhere in the Middle East, God created a place that was especially delightful, even above the delightfulness of the rest of the earth, a place that he calls the Garden of Eden. And the Garden of Eden was the cradle of humanity. That is where humanity was born and created. When did God create this Garden of Eden? If you would read the text that we did this afternoon, you might be led to think that God first created the man, verse 7, and then he created the Garden of Eden, verse 8. And that would lead you to conclude that God created the Garden of Eden on the sixth day of creation. Because we know from chapter 1, God created man on the sixth day. But it seems more likely that the order is reversed, actually, in the chapter that we read. It seems more likely that God created the Garden of Eden on the third day of creation. Because it was on that day that he caused all of the grass and shrubs and trees to come forth from the earth. And that is exactly what he did when he planted the Garden of Eden in our text. I will not make a big controversy about that. I myself used to think, and I preached in a sermon some years ago, that it was the other way around, that God created man on day six, and then he planted the garden after he created man, and then he placed man into the garden exactly as it reads in chapter two. And that's a possible interpretation, but it does seem to me that he planted the Garden of Eden on day three, created man on day six, and then put man into the garden. It doesn't make a great deal of difference. But if what I'm saying is true, then we can understand why it is arranged in this order in our text. Because as we saw before, Genesis gives two accounts of the creation of the world. In the first account from chapter 1, verse 1, till chapter 2, verse 3, the seven days of creation are laid out. In that first account, we are shown that Elohim, that's the name that Moses gives to God in chapter 1, Elohim, which means the Mighty One, He, by the mere word of His power, brought into being all the creatures of the universe. And the focus then is on Elohim, His power, the power of His word, bringing forth all things. Chapter 2, you notice that Moses introduces the name Lord, or in the original, Yahweh, Jehovah, Lord God, Jehovah God. And in this second account of creation, which harmonizes completely with the first account, they were both written by Moses, and they complement each other. In this second account, God wants us to zero in and focus our attention on his work of the creation of man. That's why he mentions the creation of man first. Because God did not create the Garden of Eden for the animals. He created it for man. 
So Moses writes of how God created man and put him into the garden because he wants us to see the garden was made for man. God made it as a home, as a dwelling place, where he would dwell with his human creatures in a warm covenant relationship. And that's why the Garden of Eden is the most beautiful type that points forward to the better paradise in heaven where God will dwell with all of his people after this life. I call your attention then to the text under the theme, the Garden of Eden. We're going to look at that. Notice first that it's God's paradise on earth. In the second place, we're going to look at the trees that were in the midst of the garden. And then finally, the calling to dress and keep the garden. We read in verse 8, And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Again, you notice the name Lord is in the text, Yahweh. That name calls attention to God's steadfast love for his people in the covenant relationship. He is Jehovah. He does not change. He is faithful in his relationship to his people. That name is introduced here to show that God is creating in this garden a paradise where he will dwell in love with his human creatures. What a lovely place it was. It was located somewhere in the Middle East, Moses tells us that it was eastward in Eden. When he says eastward, he means to say from his point of view, where was Moses? He was in Egypt. He was in the wilderness. And then the children of Israel went into Canaan. That was where Moses lived his life. So when he wrote these words, he's saying eastward, to the east. That's where the Garden of Eden used to be. Somewhere in the Middle East, somewhere in the land known as Mesopotamia, and the land known today as Iraq the land of the great rivers that flow into the Persian Gulf. A beautiful and lovely place it was. He calls it the Garden of Eden. That word Eden in the original Hebrew means delight or pleasure. It was a land of delight, a land of pleasure. Now, the whole earth was a delightful place. It was beautiful, lovely, perfect, pristine, Just imagine how lovely and beautiful then the land of Eden must have been. Eden was a land in the midst of the earth. Somehow it was marked by borders. We don't know what those borders were, but it was a particular region in the earth. A land, not yet populated by people, but it was delineated by God in the earth as a place that was particularly delightful. Now, the Garden of Eden was a special place within the land of Eden. So if the whole earth was lovely and the land of Eden was even more lovely, how beautiful was the garden in the heart of the land of Eden, the land of pleasure and delight? That's the point of the name Garden of Eden. It was indeed God's paradise on earth. And if you read the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you will find in this text that the word garden is translated paradise. Paradise is a Greek word. The word paradise simply means a garden. 
or a park or an orchard. It's used that way throughout the scriptures. But the word paradise in our usage today carries the idea of a most beautiful place or even a most pleasant and enjoyable experience in this life. But the Garden of Eden was the true and first paradise and really the only paradise that has ever existed on this earth. Much more wonderful than any faraway resort or tropical island that we might imagine as paradise. This was God's paradise, and it was a most amazing place. It was the handiwork of God himself. The Lord God planted this garden in paradise. Notice that. He planted this garden. In chapter 1, we are simply told that God said, let the earth bring forth grass, herbs, and trees, and it was done. He simply spoke, and it was done. But having done that, as it were, God would have us to imagine him now condescending into the earth, zeroing in his attention on this one land of Eden and this one place within the land of Eden, as if there he stuck his fingers into the ground and planted a garden. The scriptures would have us to understand that God is the master gardener, greater and better than all other gardeners that have ever existed. God sticking his fingers into the soil of Eden caused these beautiful trees to rise up out of the earth. Verse 9, out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight. Beautiful, exquisite trees bearing the most beautiful and delicious fruits, good for food, we are told. Not only that, but this was a garden. And the Hebrew word for garden means an enclosure. It refers to a place that is somehow closed off from other places. So on that very same moment, we are to imagine that suddenly there rose up out of the earth some kind of wall or some kind of hedge that surrounded the exterior of that garden. Probably a hedge of plants, bushes, trees, tightly and closely growing together to form an exterior wall. Otherwise, how could God have ousted Adam and Eve from that garden. There was a hedge surrounding it, and there was an entrance to it. We are told also in the text that a river went out of Eden to water the garden. There was a river that God created, a special river that flowed from the land of Eden into the garden of Eden, and then it flowed out of the garden and divided into four branches. Now, we are told in the context that there was no rain on the earth yet. There was no rain until after the flood. But God watered the rest of the earth by a mist. But God watered the Garden of Eden not only by a mist, he also caused this river to flow into the garden to water it so that this garden was even more lush, more beautiful than the rest of Eden and the rest of of the world. We know the location of the Garden of Eden from its description, particularly regarding that river. Notice in verse 10, we are told that the river that went into the garden was from thence parted and became into four heads. And then we are told the names of those four rivers that flowed out of the garden. 
It's from that description that Moses shows us the general location of the Garden of Eden in the Middle East. Two of those branches of that original river still exist today. The Hittichel and the Euphrates. The Hittichel is the Tigris River. And the Euphrates carries the same name yet today. Those two rivers flow through the nation of Iraq and they combine at their mouth and flow into the Persian Gulf. The other two rivers, the Paisan and the Gaihan, are unknown. Scholars have never been able to determine what they are, but there are many who believe, and there is much possibility to that, that they refer to two branches of the Nile River. Now, the Nile River is no longer connected to the Euphrates and the Tigris, and that probably teaches us that what Moses is laying down in the text was no longer true in Moses' day. It had been affected. The world had changed since that time. All we have to do is think of the flood, the fall of man into sin, the changes that happened in the surface of the earth through all of those great things. These rivers were changed and redirected. But originally, there was one river that flowed into the Garden of Eden, branched into four other rivers, And those rivers still exist somewhere in the world. We are told that those rivers flowed around the land of Havilah, Ethiopia, Assyria. All of those lands are in the Middle East. We are told that these lands were very beautiful. There was gold there, and that gold was good. There was bdellium. There was onyx stone. There were these gems, these beautiful sparkling stones and metals laying around in these lands. It was a picture of beauty, delightfulness, a pristine paradise. And that is where God placed the man. Verse 8, there he put the man whom he had formed. That's where he put him. The man did not put himself there. No man can put himself into paradise. No man can earn or merit a place in paradise. But God took Adam and put him there. God gave him this home. He gave him this paradise as a dwelling place. And it was the purpose of God to dwell with him there. As we sang in the Psalms earlier from Psalm 84, How lovely are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts. The child of God considers the house of God to be most lovely, to come to church on the Lord's Day. What a delightful place. What a lovely place. And yet, this house of the Lord is only a a small shadow of what once was and an even smaller shadow of what will be, as we will see. The Garden of Eden was the house of God. It was the place where God fellowshiped with Adam, and that was the chief delight. Not so much the beautiful trees and the tropical birds singing in the branches, the river trickling through, and all of the delights of the garden, but this, that God was there. God was there in that beautiful place with Adam to talk to him, to walk with him, to have fellowship together. That was the Garden of Eden. That beautiful garden was an earthly type of the heavenly paradise. The heavenly paradise into which God will lead all of his people through Christ. 
just as God put Adam in the Garden of Eden, God, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, put him in that heavenly paradise, exalted him to that heavenly paradise. And exalting Christ there, God will exalt all those who belong to Christ as well. After the Garden of Eden was lost, God pointed his people forward to this heavenly paradise. God never intended that man would dwell with him in this original Garden of Eden forever. That was not his intention. That was never his plan. And that explains why they didn't stay there very long. God's intention all along was that man would fall into sin, that paradise would be lost, and that then God would show that this was only a type and a shadow of the true and the better paradise up above. So the prophets reminded God's people of that. The prophet Isaiah, in chapter 51, he said, The Lord shall comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. And he will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness shall be found therein, thanksgiving and the voice of melody. Through Ezekiel the prophet, chapter 36, verse 35, God comforted his people again. This land that was desolate is become like the garden of Eden, and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are become fenced and are inhabited. In the midst of the ruin and the confusion and the chaos of the world that we live in, God says there is a paradise. There's a paradise like the Garden of Eden, like the Garden of the Lord. Then God sent his Son into the world, and Jesus died on the cross to take away our sins and rose from the dead. But while he was still hanging on the cross, what did he say to the penitent thief? Today thou shalt be with me in paradise, in the garden, the garden of the Lord, the true garden up above. God gave a glorious vision to the Apostle Paul, which he tells us in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 2 and 3. Paul says, I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, referring to himself. Such an one caught up to the third heaven. He was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Caught up into paradise, Paul was given a taste of the paradise up above. The Lord Jesus gave this comforting promise to the church at Ephesus that had left their first love. Calling them to repentance, he said, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat, of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God, referring to that paradise up above. The Garden of Eden was just the shadow cast by the heavenly paradise down onto the earth. Only a dim reflection. Imagine the glories and the beauties that await us in that heavenly paradise up above. But even that heavenly paradise is only the beginning of the eternal paradise Ultimately, the Garden of Eden doesn't merely point to that heavenly paradise, but it points forward to the final and everlasting paradise. And so John sees a vision in Revelation 22. 
a vision of the new heavens and the new earth after Christ returns, after the final judgment and the resurrection of the body. He sees a vision of this, a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun. For the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. John sees a vision of the eternal paradise, where all God's people will be gathered together in our resurrected bodies, in our purified souls, to dwell with God there forever. There will be no sun, because God will be the light. There will be a river flowing, just like in the original garden, but that river is a symbol of the pure water of life and of the continuous flow of eternal, immortal life that will come to us from Jesus Christ, where we will dwell forever and ever. That mention of the tree of life in the book of Revelation brings us back to our text and to those two trees in the midst of the garden. Verse 9 We are told that God caused all kinds of beautiful trees to grow and the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There were two special trees that God made in the garden. These two trees were very similar to all the other trees in some ways. They had roots in the ground from which they dragged water into the trunk, and they had branches, and they had leaves, and they had fruit, and they looked like other trees. They had fruit that was good to eat. But these were special trees. Otherwise, why did God mention them in the text, and why are they given special names, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What about that tree of life? There have been various interpretations of the tree of life, and I admit that it's a mystery to know for sure what that tree represents. But it seems to me clear enough that God created that tree of life to produce a special fruit that evidently would have extended the physical bodily life of man in the earth if he would have eaten it. The tree of life was somehow different from the other trees. The other trees produced fruit as well, fruit that was good to eat, fruit that would nourish and strengthen the body. And by means of eating the fruit of the trees, man would sustain his life. Otherwise, why did God give the fruit? God intended to sustain man's life by means of eating the fruit of the trees. But there was this special tree of life in the midst of the garden, the tree of life. It was a tree that gave life, a tree that gave a certain kind of life, earthly life, physical life, 
so that if man would have eaten the fruit of that tree, he would have lived forever in his body on the earth. No, he would not have somehow reached everlasting heavenly life up above by eating that tree. No, he would not have attained everlasting life in the true paradise of God by eating that tree. But by eating the fruit of that tree, he would have gained life forever on the earth. And notice, that would have been true even if man had fallen into sin and had eaten the fruit of that tree after he fell into sin. In chapter 3, after the fall of man into sin, we are told in verse 22, The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Now, some say that God was speaking ironically here. That man only thought that he would live forever if he ate that fruit, but that it was not actually true, and that God was speaking in an ironic tone. That's possible. That's a possible interpretation. But it seems also possible that God was simply speaking the literal truth. If man would have eaten the fruit of that tree after he sinned, he would have continued to live in his body, physically, on the earth, as a sinner. So that the fruit of that tree would have fortified him and strengthened him to sin forever and ever. God would not have that. Now, we must not misunderstand. There really was no possibility of that at all. That hypothetical situation. There is no possibility of it, because God determined that would not happen. And God executed his counsel. God made sure that Adam and Eve would never eat the fruit of that tree, and they probably never did. God executed his punishment of death in all of its forms. When Adam and Eve sinned, they became spiritually dead, but they didn't die physically yet. And if they had eaten the fruit of that tree, it would have empowered them to keep living on the earth. And isn't that the sinner's dream? To live in the body on the earth forever and ever and to live as I please. God would not have that. That's why he barred the way to the tree of life. So that they could not eat that tree, the fruit of that tree, and live forever. But there's more to the tree of life than that. It surely is, as many commentators have said, also a kind of a symbol and a type. It was a symbol, a sort of sacrament even, if you will, of the life that man already had been given. Adam was alive. He was already alive. God had given him life. And the tree of life was a memorial to that. It was a physical, visible sign and seal to Adam of the life that God had given to him for which he must be thankful constantly. It wasn't a sacrament like baptism or the Lord's Supper, which is a sacrament for us sinners. But it was a sacrament to Adam in the state of righteousness as a constant remembrance 
of what God had done for him in creating him and giving him existence, giving him life. And Adam would continue to enjoy that life that God gave to him in the way of thankful obedience and by means of eating from the tree of life. But that was not God's plan, as we know well. God's plan was that man would fall into sin, that he would not walk in thankful obedience. And therefore, God intended that that tree of life would also be a type pointing forward, not just a symbol pointing back to what Adam had been given. But now, as Adam is thrusted out of the garden, he thinks of that tree of life, and it's a type. It's a prophecy. It points forward to Christ, the true tree of life. Jesus came into the world saying, Whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die, but shall have everlasting life. That's the promise of the gospel from the lips of Christ. Whoever believes in me will have everlasting life. He is the tree of life. He is the one whom, by eating of his fruit by faith, a man will live forever. And that's why John in his vision in Revelation 22, he sees that in the new paradise, there will be the throne of God and of the Lamb. And what John saw was that from that throne there was a street of gold proceeding. And from that street of, in that street of gold was that river of, of living water flowing right down the middle of the stream. And on both sides of that stream and that street, the tree of life growing. Not just one tree of life, but many trees of life. They were all lined along that street of gold and that river of the water of life. And that water of life is flowing from the throne. The throne of God and the Lamb. That living water flows from Christ. He is the tree of life. The life that he has earned through his death and resurrection flows to his people. We are told that those trees of life in the new creation will bear fruit every month and leaves for the healing of the nations. That's the tree of life. What about the other tree? It's possible that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was right there in the midst of the garden as well, perhaps even right next to the tree of life. Notice that there is no tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the paradise that will last forever. In John's vision, he sees the tree of life there, but no tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's because in the new creation, there will be no possibility of sin ever again. Not even the possibility of sin. In the original Garden of Eden, it was possible for man to sin But when all God's people arrive on the shores of eternity, it will not be possible ever again for us to sin. There will be no knowledge, no tree of the knowledge of good and evil there. In the first paradise, there was. That tree was also a special tree planted by God there in the garden. But that tree was not what Satan said it was. When Satan later came to tempt man to eat that fruit, he said that if you eat the fruit of that tree, you will become like gods, knowing good and evil. That was not true. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil did not bear fruit. That eating that fruit would make you a god, 
that Adam would become a god. A god, knowing good and evil, that is, determining for yourself what you think is good and what you think is evil. God does not give that to us. It is not possible for us to become God. We will never be gods. We will never have the right to determine for ourselves what is good and what is evil. God only has that right. God only is God, and he only will ever be God. Nor is the meaning of this tree that by eating the fruit, Adam would learn what good and evil are as if he didn't know what good and evil were. That wasn't the case. Adam knew what was good and what was evil. God created him in his own image. Adam was created righteous and holy, and Adam knew that what is good is to obey my God in love and service, and what is evil is to disobey him. He knew that. He knew that already. He even knew the specific commandments, although God didn't have to give the Ten Commandments on tables of stone yet. He did write that law on the heart of Adam and later on the heart of Eve as well. They knew in their hearts that they ought not to worship other gods, that they ought not to blaspheme God's name, kill, commit adultery, etc. They knew all that. They knew that they must love God with all their heart, and they did. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was planted there by God in order to create, as it were, the possibility of sin. God is not the author of sin. God did not force man to sin. But God did put that tree there. And he commanded Adam and Eve that you may eat freely of all the trees of the garden. Take your pick. You can eat any of the fruit here, including the tree of life. Eat it for your nourishment. But God said, don't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat that fruit. That's the only command that I make explicit. All the other commands were written on their hearts. And really, even that command that God gave, there was nothing moral or immoral about eating the fruit of that tree. There was nothing inherently sinful about eating the fruit of a particular tree, all of God's creatures are good and nothing to be refused. It's not as if the fruit of that tree was poisonous, so to eat it was to commit suicide and thereby to sin against my own body. It wasn't like that. It was a good tree. Its fruit was good. Nothing wrong with that fruit. But God said, don't eat it. Because God wanted Adam and Eve to obey him and to say yes, and to say no to sin. He wanted them to obey and to walk in the light in conscious rejection of the darkness. So what would have happened if they ate the fruit of that tree? They would have come to know good and evil, all right. Intellectually, they already knew, but they would come to know it by experience. Whereas before, all they experienced was good. Now, all they experienced would be evil. God warned them that in the day that they eat of that tree, they would surely die. When God gave that warning, he was not establishing a covenant of works. 
There are many people in the Reformed circles who claim that this verse is where God first established his covenant with man, verse 17. They say that this verse teaches that God was establishing an agreement, which is what they consider the covenant to be, an agreement between himself and Adam. And in that agreement, God was promising to give Adam life on the condition that Adam would obey him. They load all of that into that text. And they call it a covenant of works. Because, they say, man had to do works in order to stay in that covenant. But we don't find any of that in the text. We do believe that God established his covenant with Adam. But not there in verse 17. The word covenant doesn't appear in Genesis until chapter 6. The covenant with Noah. But we believe God established his covenant with Adam because we see all of the elements of a covenant there. If a covenant is a relationship of fellowship. And that's what we believe it is. When God created Adam, at that very moment when God created him, that's when he established his covenant with Adam. When Adam first awoke, he was in covenant with God immediately because the covenant is a relationship of friendship. Adam awoke into this world as God's friend. And God was his friend. So God was commanding Adam to live as his friend in the Garden of Eden. Live as my friend. Obey me. And if you disobey, you will die. Those who hold to this covenant of works idea believe that if Adam had obeyed God for a certain amount of time, which they call the probationary period, none of that's in the text. If he had obeyed God for a certain amount of time, Adam would actually merit eternal life with God, and he would secure himself by his own works in that covenant and in eternal life. We find nothing of that in the text. They believe that because they think it's necessary to say that in order to say that that's what Jesus did. They like to say Adam failed to do what Jesus did successfully. Well, that's true, of course. But Adam was just a man. He couldn't do what Jesus did. Adam couldn't merit. Jesus could. And Jesus did. No, when God gave that command of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... God was only giving him a warning of what was going to happen negatively if he disobeyed. He wasn't promising that he could merit something by obedience. In fact, God planned all along that Adam was going to fall into disobedience so that we would look forward to the coming of Christ who would establish the true and everlasting covenant. Christ, by his death and resurrection, has suffered this penalty of death that we deserve. When God says in the text, in the day that thou eat thereof, thou shalt surely die, he says that to all of us. He says, every time you sin, you deserve to die. Every sin you commit, you're plucking the fruit and eating it. But then he says, but I've sent my son to die for you. On the cross, to take that penalty Look to Christ, believe in Christ, and find in him life everlasting. Finally, let's notice that God had a calling to give to Adam there in the garden. 
verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. God, who is the master gardener, called Adam to be a gardener under him. He placed Adam in the garden as a prophet, a priest, and a king, as having dominion over all the creation, but particularly over the Garden of Eden. Adam was to reign over that garden as a king, and God gave him work to do. We must never imagine that Adam was just sitting there lazily along the river, drinking occasionally from the river and soaking up the sun rays and just enjoying himself lazily, plucking fruit and eating. But God had work for him to do. Work is a good thing. Work is not a result of the fall. What is a result of the fall is that work is hard. But work itself is not a bad thing. Work is a good thing, the work of the hands. God put Adam in the garden and said, Now dress this garden and keep it. That's the work I give you to do here. Dressing the garden meant tending it, cultivating it, taking care of it. We might wonder what was there to do in a perfect world. Didn't all the plants just grow in perfect, uh, pristine beauty all the time? Well, yes, but evidently, mysteriously to us, there was work to do there. God had work for Adam to do. He had to cultivate that ground. He had to care for those uh, flowers and those trees. He had to trim those bushes and he had to pluck those fruits and take care of those animals that were living there guiding and leading them as their king. And he also had to keep the garden. Keeping the garden means holding on to it, guarding it, watching over it. And you might wonder, again, in a paradise, why did he have to do that? There were no real enemies, were there? The animals were not yet ferociously opposing him. There were no other human beings yet to wage war against him. Ah, but there was one enemy who probably had already fallen, a spiritual enemy that Adam couldn't see with his eyes, but who had every intention of going into that garden. And so God told Adam from the very beginning, keep this garden, watch over this garden, stand guard over this garden, beware of the enemy. Now, that was a very delightful and pleasant work for Adam to do. He didn't sweat. There were no tears. There were no wounds. There was no blood. There were no weeds or pests. It was a beautiful, wonderful, satisfying work. Now work is much harder, as we will see when we get to the fall. Nevertheless, work is a good thing, working with our hands. And God also commands each of us to work. He says to each of us now as we go forth from God's house today, dress and keep your garden. We don't live in the Garden of Eden anymore, but we are in the new and emerging garden of God's church. And within the church, the garden of God's church, which will become perfect in paradise, each of us has a place and a calling. As Christian parents, God calls us to dress and to keep the gardens of our homes. 
We have work to do in our homes. We have a garden there. We have little children like olive plants sitting around our tables or little babies in our cradles. God says, dress and take care of those tender plants, nurturing them, cherishing them, teaching them, admonishing them by your words, by your example, and keep them. Stand watch over those little ones. There are enemies about. Take care of their little souls. As Christians who go out into the workplace, he says, dress and keep your garden. You have work to do. Do it with diligence. Study to be quiet, as the apostle says, doing your own business to the best of your ability, with all your might in the service, not of man, but in the service of Christ, working with your hands the thing that is good so that you may have to give to the poor. And as you go to work, he says, keep your garden. Watch out for the snares of the enemy who may tempt you to sin. And right here in the church, God says, Keep and dress the garden, particularly to office bearers. He says, dress and keep the garden, the garden of God's people. In this garden, trees are growing, like in Psalm 1 that we will sing in a minute. Trees growing by the riverside, well planted by God, bearing their fruit. And he says to office bearers, dress and keep that garden. Take care of those trees. They need cultivating, they need comforting, they need teaching and guarding from the enemy. Stand watch on the walls of the garden. All of that work and all the other work that we are called to do is difficult work, but we do it in hope. We do it in hope that God will soon take us out of this world and bring us into the paradise up above. As long as we labor in this world, then, we don't look back with longing eyes on paradise lost, on the beautiful garden of delights that God made in the beginning, with its beautiful gemstones and pristine conditions and temperatures and sinlessness and fellowship with God there. But we look forward. We look forward in hope. Remembering the promise that Jesus says, To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. Keep that in your hearts this coming week. Amen. Our Father, we give thee thanks for the riches of the Scripture. We're able to draw out of the Old Testament, even from things of the dawn of history, comforts and hope for the world to come. We pray, Father, thou wilt also use the word this afternoon to encourage us in our labors, in the home, in the church, in the workplace, knowing that we labor as Christians, as trees in the garden of our God. And in this way, may we be fruitful, having heard the word of the gospel this day. May we abound in much fruit to thy glory.